We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. I like it, you've all gone quiet. I'm not going to sing the song. This song, I can't get out of my head. I'm hoping that playing it to you will mean it goes out of my head and then we can move on with our lives. But we may not get to have the song at all. My kids really love it. It's a bit Jackson 5-ish. For weeks, weeks that song's been going on in my head. That's by Keith Green. Um, I tried to find a music video. They obviously didn't do music videos back in the 70s in the same sense. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's not maybe my favourite tune, but I've just... Um, it's been going round around my head, because I realised even though it's written 30, 40 years ago, it's got some messages uh, for us, and partly... Um, it's this whole thing of, it's a song from God to us, saying, I want to spend time with you, I want to be connected, but you're getting distracted by all these other things, and we can substitute these other things. We, we know that, that Jesus is the light of the world, but here it says, you prefer the light of your TV, or the light of your phone screen, or tablet, all those kind of things. If we, if we count up the amount of hours we spend doing different things... Amount of hours. I, I have a report that's sent to me by Microsoft. It tells me how much, how many hours my kids spend on a screen. Uh, it's it's interesting. Even even on a quiet week, even when we've been out and about, there's still lots of stuff. And yet, on the other side, we we find it so hard to spend time uh, with God, spend time on our own, spend our time praying, spend our time reading our Bible. Um, I've got a lot of Bibles. Uh, I, I started buying Bibles up when I was much younger, before you had Bible software. And I'm a great believer in osmosis, that the more concentration you get in a space, the more it will jump into your head. 
But so far, it's not worked that way. You actually have to open it and read it and, and get to grips with it. It won't just jump in your head. Uh, and yet, a lot of us have a Bible on a desk or a shelf somewhere, but we have to open them up and look at them. So, anyway, I, it keeps a mind worm, that song, this challenge about spending time with God and, and not getting distracted by other things. What I want to start with today, it could all be everything, um, everything we look at today, you could come away and say, oh, I've got to try harder, I've got to do more, all that kind of thing. And that's really not what I want to say. That's not what I want to look at. But it's about refocusing and reconnecting in that way. And um, what I keep coming back to, uh, I, I had a bit of a challenge early this year. I was listening to a sermon and this gentleman worked through four different approaches to the gospel. He called it the four American gospels. And the phrase he kept on saying is, is that if we don't look at the gospel that Jesus preached, we'll end up preaching another one. And I thought, that's a good point. So for the last six months, I've just kept reading and reading and reading and reading the gospels. You know, some of them are pretty hard. Jesus was not easy to be around. I mean, I went through Matthew the other day. Not easy. I was not feeling all that warm towards him. But I keep, I keep going back, keep going back to find out what's there. And then I'm diving a little bit into, into the New Testament and just, you know, keep on reading and different bits. But everything I've looked at and studied out over the past few years, I keep coming back to this central point. And that's that day of Pentecost where, where the disciples, the followers of Jesus got filled with the Spirit, got baptised. And everything I say today has to come out of that point. That, that I can have all good ideas, I can show you pictures and different things, but in the end, nothing matters other than that infilling with the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want. So I'll start with my end in that, hey, if you're here today and you, you feel a sense, I, I want to know what it's like to live um, with God's power and his spirit flowing through me. That's what I want us come to, to come to, to be praying and asking God for his infilling. You know, as I was looking at uh, Luke's gospel recently, I realized that although Pentecost is very significant, we see a whole group of people being filled with the Spirit, that actually the coming of Jesus is, you see the Holy Spirit start to kind of spill out all different places. So most of us will remember the story of John the Baptist how he's even filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. But then as I was reading it, I realized that Elizabeth, his mother himself, Jesus' aunt in that sense, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist's father, Zachariah, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a prophetess who's been hanging around the temple waiting for the coming of God, and she's filled. It's like as Jesus comes, he breaks out everywhere. His spirit breaks out everywhere. And I thought, cool, I'd like a bit of that that kind of spilling, that kind of overflow everywhere we go. So I'm kind of hungry for that. So whatever comes up today, that's what I want to come back to, that whole thing about pursuing the presence of God. And, and we can do it in different ways. I, when, when you grow up as a pastor's kid, there is one significant thing about going on holiday. I'll tell you what, ask the person next to you, what, what, what makes a holiday for you? What one thing do you have to do for it to be a holiday? Have a, have a quick chat with the person next to you. 
Okay. Okay. Let's get some. Let's get some examples then. Right. I'm seeing. I'm seeing my old friend. Haycraft. We went, we went on holiday, four of us once, and we decided to go camping. But, you know, back in those days, you just went camping. You didn't plan it. So a bunch of us got in the car, and we said, right, where do we go? And there was a friend with us, Ben, and he said, it feels like holiday when you go through the Dartford Tunnel. <laughs> so that was his indicator. And then there wasn't a bridge, you see. That's how far back that was. Right. What else? What else feels like a holiday? Anyone? Oh. Sun, yes. Can't always guarantee it. Entertainment. Ice cream. Ice cream. Cream tea. Cream tea, yes. Right, okay. Okay, someone's like to get away from our family. Right, okay, that's good. Family could be good, personally. Right, as a pastor's kid, the main indication is on... Um, indication that you're on holiday is that you don't go to the meeting on a Sunday. You have Sunday off. <laughs> that's, that's the pinnacle. <sighs> you know. Actually, it's funny. When you, when you don't go uh, to church on a Sunday morning, you realize you can always tell Christians because they've got dirty cars. Because everyone else gets out and washes their car on a Sunday morning. Yeah, we just have to rub our little fish sign off. Right, okay. So this week, I've just been on holiday. This week, to be honest with you, I feel so hungry to come into God's presence that I went to church somewhere else. It was very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, And, you know, it's interesting. They they did some similar things that we did here. Talked about things, God, to be thankful for God. They've, They've actually had, in that church, they've had a number of bereavements I thought, God, this feels, this feels closer to home. But they said, so let's therefore look at all the good things. What are we thankful for? And there was a church of about 70 people, and everyone, well, not everyone, but a good number of people just volunteered things. I remember that key verse in 1 Corinthians. It says, when you come together, each has a song, each has an encouragement, each has all these things. And I feel that challenge to stir those things up over lockdown, um, I don't know if this was legal at this point or not, but, you know, we'll, we'll work with the law. But some of us gathered together in a little group we called Garden Worship. See, the government was, they didn't really out, outlaw gardens to start with. So we got together and worshipped in our garden. But, you know, the interesting thing is, these guys, all this stuff that's here, all the guys at the back, they do us a great service. But we can come and just be spectators. We can be connoisseurs of worship. Mm, we try that. I like that song. I like that. I like that speaker. But when we were there in our garden, we realized it was all on us. And boy, were we rusty. And it was hard work. But we kept on going. There were precious times. But if, when you come together, each has a song. Each has something to bring. Each has an encouragement. So it's important to come and see those things coming alive in ourselves. So we've come through an interesting time. We're still going through interesting times. Um, I don't know how it is for you, but because my, my work is often to do with policy and charities and all the things that are happening. Um, in fact, I, I'll tell you a secret. I often I have to change my password on my computer quite frequently. 
and I tend to use Prime Minister's names. My password has outlived the latest Prime Minister. <laughs> so it's, uh, the turnover's quite quick in that sense. But it's, it's difficult times. It's interesting times. There's cost, I reckon I could keep warm from now until Christmas just by going to cost of living events. Because there's lots of events that people talk about cost of living. In fact, this Christmas, I think, is the only Christmas that uh, children can be being bad so they get a lump of coal so they can keep warm. <laughs> Christmas joke there, you're going to get one. Right. <laughs> okay. But it's difficult times. And it's interesting as people are starting to consider the times we're living, they're, they're saying, are we in, are we in decline? Is are our institutions, that's a big word, but meaning the things we do together to get a to get a preferable future? Are our institutions in decline? Is our society in decline? I was listening to someone, and, and, and actually this talk today is, I have, to, I have to give credit to two Marks. Mark Sayers, who is a pastor in Australia, and Mark McGrath, who's someone you will know. And for those of you long enough, have been here long enough, you may recognize parts of this sermon that I shall do word for word from 1991. So, but if, if you look at how societies develop, how civilizations develop, they go through these different generations. And I think we can apply that to ourselves, not only in society, but also into us as the church and us as a new church or a house church. We've not been around that long. This church came around in the 70s. There are still original people here, although no one's allowed to be over 40. Remember that? Remember that? See, some of you remember that. We're not allowed to get old. We've got to be renewing our minds fresh and that kind of thing. So the first generation, they have a, they're, they're the pioneering generation. If you were to look at different types of people, you could say, well, they're like the people that get their family together and go to another country for a positive future. They say, right, where we, where we, this place we're at, we, we've not got any future here. We're going to take everyone. We're going to board up. We're going to go somewhere else. We're going to work hard so our kids can be part of that society, maybe go to university, do those kind of things. That generation is marked out by sacrificial commitment and perseverance. They really go for it. And some of us can think of you know, the people before us, the generation before us that are like that. And certainly within our church family, we can see that about the people that pioneered this church, that there was sacrificial commitment. The next generation comes along, they may go to university, they may appreciate the things that have been developed, but they're, they're not so focused on the why, but the what, what we've got. And they're marked out by service and servicing. They appreciate, they go to university, they appreciate what's happening, they see, I'm kind of throwing different threads at different generations together here. The next generation is a bit distant. And they kind of assume this is the way it's always been. You can come on a Sunday morning, walk into this church or walk into other churches, think, oh, this is, you, you lot have been here for ages. We have been here for ages. This is the way it's always been. Um, these musicians, they just turn up, they can play anything. Well, mostly anything. But there's a lot of hard work that goes on behind. We can be in a place of assumption. And the ethic of that generation is entitlement. This is what I'm owed. This is what I'm due. This is what I should get. 
And we see that really as a spirit of this age, quite far away from sacrificial commitment. I'm owed, I expect, I assume. We were in uh, Lancashire and parts of Yorkshire last week, and I kept on driving past these chapels, Methodist chapels, Baptist chapels, in quite small towns. They were quite big buildings. And I was thinking, what happened in that town that there were so many people coming to God and so passionate that they managed to get together what little money they had to build these places? And I wonder how many people go there now. I wonder what the sacrifice and commitment was to enable that building and that church to be established. And I wonder what's happening now. Because it passes. It can pass. After that whole generation of assumption of entitlement, we can move to a point of neglect. It's always been there. And the final generation is one of putting to death and mourning. If we look through history, people often look, you know, you see the people in the medieval period finding these Roman buildings and these straight roads and thinking, I wonder how they did that. They kind of neglected the knowledge. They neglected the, the, the purpose, and they lost out. That's why we sometimes call the medieval period the Dark Ages, because we're looking back to the light of the, those classical periods and things that come before. We can lose out, and we can, we, can, we can lose the spirit of what was there. And the key loss is it's not about the patterns. It's about the postures. See, it's hard to say, always describe what the vision was at the start, but there was a, a, a momentum, a posture. If you're, if you're going to run a race, I remember when, actually, it may be hard to believe, but when I was at school, I was quite fast. Running, not to the dinner queue, but running, right? And, uh, and year 10, year 11s are already, they've gone off to their exams. But year 10, we had the 100 metres, it was the big race, you know. Six of us lined up there. I was there for my house. I think our house was called Cranmer or Canterbury or something like that. And that third, third along, there was a friend of mine called Robinson. And he, he did that proper thing. He crouched down with his hands on the floor and that kind of the rest of us standing up like this. And the gun went and off we ran. I won that race. There was quite a lot of dribble, but I really, I really went for it. And... Uh, and you know PE teachers back then, you've got you lot at school now, you've not, I mean, PE teachers in my day were utterly mad. We had this mad swimming teacher, and I, apparently she had the clock on me, and she grabbed me, I've, you're mine, she said. It was very scary. Um, but I won the 100 metres. What I realised is, um, on this occasion, Robinson had fallen over. <laughs> yes, he'd got all his posture there. But he'd fallen over. Well, but he did have the right idea. I think he had the right shoes on as well. He was, he was in a whole different race. Um, but for, for a day, for about 10 minutes actually, I was the fastest thing in St. Edward's School. It was marvellous. Yes. Anyway, they put me in the relay. Actually, I'll tell you this because you know some of the people involved. They put me in the relay because obviously I just run the 100 metres. They put me in the relay and then they took me out to put Stephen Wright in. Some of you know Stephen Wright, yeah? Who then dropped the baton. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So you've got to have the right posture and not fall over. Those are key things. Because we can get focused on the what, the pattern, and lose out on the posture. 
And this whole thing about sacrificial commitment is really key. So, well, I've forgotten to do my slides. Here we go. So, I was trying to find a slide that showed entitlement. I quite, got quite a few pictures of my kids, but this is one I went for here. That whole thing about, come on, I'm owed it. So, I was listening to a podcast on my way home yesterday about, um, about what's happening in Iran, about people coming to God and how people are being evangelized from the margins. You can't have a meeting like this in Iran. So it means as people are saved, they're, they're given some New Testaments and they say, go on, go and share what God's done. Just goes. Each has something to bring, each has something to share, each has something to give. Very exciting. A posture of evangelism in that sense. In some ways, what we're in danger of losing is the special ingredient or the special source. Yes? This is when I Googled special source, this is what came up. Special source. So, you know, you, you, the, the restaurant starts off with this major recipe and they make a whole bunch of it and people think, right, we've got lots of special sauce, we'll keep adding that in. But over the generations, if you don't keep making it, you can lose the special sauce. And we can be like that. We can focus on what, our form and all those kind of things and we can lose out on that special sauce, that sacrificial commitment, that vision, that decision where we're going to go. I think for us, shared life is something that we have to be intentional about. And the work and research I've done comes back again and again, that if you just get together and you just, oh, we're just sharing life, and there's no intention to it, you're just hanging out. You're just being with the people you want to be with. Shared life, I think, is one of our special ingredients. As I've, as I've talked to different leaders over the past uh, couple of years, I realise there is, there is this hunger in churches, but actually in the wider society as well, for, for community. My one concern with what I'm finding from most pastors is they are responding to that structurally. They're just breaking their, their meetings down to smaller meetings. They're focused on the pattern, but not the posture. You see, you can have a hotel, but you don't have to be hospitable. And I was going to show you a video. There are so many videos of Basil Forty not being hospitable that I lost quite a lot of prep time watching them. <laughs> but you can have the label of things, but not do it. I think it's a challenge. I know certainly um, we've seen, I was looking at some stats about children over lockdown. I think there's a, a, a million children in the UK that are behind with their language acquisition because of lockdown, because of those kind of things. There's, there's, I saw a, a terrible stat about how one thing leads to the, another in terms of learning because that affects all subjects. And if people are behind where they want to be, uh, they start finding themselves in trouble and start finding themselves in the criminal justice system, it all comes in these things. So the effects we've got and what we can do as a community to provide spaces to connect with people is really important. But hospitality has to be done, something done on purpose. I have to confess, in my house now, 
if you knock the, on the door, it's touch and go if the door's going to be opened. Yes, because normally people got some kind of headphones on, that kind of stuff. But it didn't used to be that way. It used to be bursting and dragging people in, that kind of thing. But hospitality has to be intentional, has to be on purpose. Otherwise, you get a little bit like Basil in that sense. It doesn't happen on its own. In fact, we can, we can become so passive and so entitled that we can doze off. We can, life just drifts by. I can't be bothered. Um, one thing I realise, so much opportunity for us to take an easy route for doing things. Um, and Jesus warned his disciples about dozing off. Now, to wake you guys up, and because half of you have got your phones in your hand anyway, I want to give you a bit of a quiz now. There are two times that Peter falls asleep in key moments. So can anyone tell me, first of all, the first, the one we most know, when, Jesus, when Peter fell asleep when he wasn't supposed to fall asleep? Right, Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> right, but there's another time, which that one, it was at night, but this one is even more like, duh, how could you fall asleep then? Anyone know? I'm expecting to see a whole bunch of teenagers Googling at this point. No, 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 we only do play games on our phones. Oh, let's see if Christopher knows. Anyone, anyone a younger person? Younger person, no? God, they're still asleep. Right, Christopher? Transfiguration, Transfiguration. right? Jesus up on top of a mountain. There's coming all these great saints, the lights, boom, boom, boom. And Peter's there having a little nap. Can you imagine that? This is my son. Boom, 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 all this stuff going on. And Peter's sleeping. That could be like us. We could be sleeping in the midst of stuff. That's a scary thought. A scary thought. I've got some Zim dollars here. I've got 20,000 Zim dollars quite a few times. I was going to get a whole wad of cash, but I realized I've not got much in the bank. So I'm using Zim dollars instead. I, I remember, Mark McGrath talked about this many years ago, this whole thing about wanting to make our life count. Now, I'm not sure, again with your phones, I'm not sure if this works, but it used to be if you got a calculator and you kept on thumping in numbers, times this, square root of that, and you pressed equals, if you got worked it really hard, the, the calculator went blank while it was trying to work that. You, you've got, have you got your calculator out, Darren? Go on, flip it on, see if you can make it go blank. Yeah? You put all those things in it. The calculator's like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Sometimes I imagine there's a big angel up in heaven saying, right, let's have a look. Richard Hilton's life, one plus one plus one plus one. All the stuff he's achieved. Right? If the calculator is happens quick, you know, gives the answer quick, the sum total of his life, it's a bit naff. I want the calculator to go blank while it's trying to work out the, the, what I've done for God in my life. I want it to, I want, I want my life to be on purpose. I don't just want to live life, I want my life to be on purpose. I want, I want that angel to be adding up my life, all that kind of stuff. Not the sin, I know some of you thinking that's a sin, I'm not talking about the sin, I'm talking about all the good stuff. 
and it goes blank. I want my life to count. Or we could say, life is spending. I'm spending. I want to spend on life. See, now, now some of them are looking up. You hear the money. Is that McKernan's at the back there? You've trained him well, Anthony. That's Woken Cameron. Now I've got some notes out. I'm spending. I want my life to achieve something. I want it to be worth spending. So, I'm rather reminded of this character in Philippians 2. So if you've got your Bibles, if you turn open to Philippians 2, that'll be good. I'm not going to... I'm not going to um, put it up on the screen. We're just going to pick out some sections. Uh, cool. So we've got to find what is the antidote. What's the antidote to this uh, passive, um, uh, entitled way of being? What things can we pursue? And I think there's a story here that's really helpful. Now, if we had time, I'd really love to read the entire chapter to you, because it's great. It's got some great stuff. Do you notice that in my Bible, it starts with if. If a chapter starts with if, you've got to be a bit suspicious. Because the chapter, the chapter sections were put in um, later, after it was written. So flip back onto Philippians 1, and you just say this. Uh, verse 29 uh, says, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer, him, uh, suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now here uh, I have. Right, then it goes on to... Uh, Philippians 2. If then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, where we started, we want to fellowship with the Holy Spirit, if any affection, any mercy, make it my joy, complete by thinking the same way and having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. There's no way of reading that section without realising it's active. You can't be passive. You can't say, I'm due a bunch of stuff. It's quite powerful in terms of what it says. Right, and there's this excellent kind of poem about Christ's humility and all this other stuff that comes down. But I want us to skip to verse 19. And first of all, it talks about Timothy. Uh, now I hope uh, in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests or seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ but you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. So there's Timothy. He's good. We know about Timothy. He's a good example. Therefore, the next chap, you kind of think, well, if Timothy's good, maybe Epaphroditus, who comes next, is not such a good example. But I consider it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and uh, minister in 
to my need, since he has been longing for you all and is distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me. So I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honour because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for what was lacking in your ministry to me. Lots of words. Essentially, Epaphroditus is sent by the Philippine church to see Paul. He takes uh, some money. He's there. He's a messenger, right? But he gets sick. Some think he may have got homesick. Some think that he may have got so sick that Paul had to spend some of the money that he'd brought to try and make him better. He was so... Has anyone ever been away and sick? I've been away. I've been on a team. I was in Zimbabwe and felt very sick at one point. And they just, you know, you want to package people off and send them home and that kind of thing. It does not feel like Epaphroditus is a successful character, right? But Paul doesn't say, get him out of my sight. He says, honour men like him. In some versions it said he risked his life. If you look at that whole word risk, there's this sense of a bit of a chance. In fact, you could say that he risked his life on a roll of a dice. Honour men like him because he risked his life. He goes out as a delivery boy, ends up being called a brother, a co-worker and a soldier. I can't imagine this pizza delivery guy getting a gun. <laughs> He goes there, he throws himself into being part of what Paul's doing. He does things intentionally. He gets involved. He says, my life, I want my life to count for something. And it doesn't work out particularly well. He gets sent back. But Paul says, honour men like him. Because he came to make up for the help you couldn't give. And for me, I considered for a little while, Heidi wasn't that keen, but I was wondering about calling our first child Epaphroditus. It didn't go down that well. Mainly, I couldn't spell it consistently, so that was going to be a problem. But he risked his life on a roll of a dice. He didn't go for protection. He didn't go for self-protection. He was buying. He was spending his life. He was spending what was, what was available to him. The spirit of the age, the pressure we've got all around, says, hey, you, you're owed this. Thanks for turning up. We appreciate you being there. But that's not the spirit that is pioneering. That's not the spirit that's going to make the calculator go blank, trying to work out what our life should be. I've been consistently reading um, about wilderness and we often think about wilderness being a bad place. In fact, sometimes our songs talk about, I'm in a bad place. God help me get me out of that bad place. But consistently we see that wilderness and suffering is part of God's plan for us to bring us into him, to bring us closer to him, that we should use these times effectively and to make something of it in that sense. We're not owed a good life in that sense. So there's a couple of things I want us to think about in response. I want to remind, um, remind you about the whole thing about shared life being an intentional thing. 
that we have to make a decision. We have to line our life up to do it. You know, in the end, you, you do the things you want to do. Yeah? If you want to get a qualification, you study, you go, you do the qualification. If you want to win the hand of that person you like, you have to do some things. You know, I don't know, take flowers or write music or whatever works. Yeah? You do those things. You, you line your life up to achieve those things. If we want to grow and not decline, we have to get back to that whole sacrificial commitment, that intentional way of being, because it doesn't just happen on itself. But first and foremost, we don't want that to come out of a striving and a following of a formula. We want God to ignite something in us that means all this stuff flows out of it. So when the day of Pentecost came and those 120 followers of Jesus got filled with the Spirit, things happened. People got healed. People started to meet from house to house. They shared what they had. They sold their belongings. There was community and it was formed. So those are the things we want to come to. So what I want to do is we're going to take some time to respond. I think firstly we need to take some time to say, God, is there, is there part of my life? Is there part of my life that I'm holding back? That I'm saying, this is for me. And the part that you have hold on. It may be your whole life. You may never have done it before. You may have said, not surrender my whole life to God. And the other thing is, let's be asking God to search us and say, God, what is it? Where, where do I need to be intentional? Where do I need to determine where you have a hold on me? And where can I step away from, from just being passive? Let's pray. Father God, Father God, we want to thank you that you're not just a book. We want to thank you that you are not just an example to us, but you're here by your spirit. Thank you, Father God, that you will come and fill us. And we ask, Lord God, that you would do that again, that you would renew your life in us. And Father God, I pray you would help us turn from being passive and instead choose to be intentional and purposed, Lord God. I just pray even now, Father God, that you start to ignite in people's minds things that you're highlighting that you want from them. You want for them to lay aside from what you want for them to do. I pray, Father God, at this point that you'd be putting people on people's hearts that they should be reaching out to, that they should be sharing about you, that they should be including in their life. And Father God, I pray that you would give us a new spirit of that first generation of sacrificial commitment, that we would choose that way rather than the other. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. That's really. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. 
We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk, on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at Lifeline UK.